0: in the dean's office and uh and started noticing that these uh uh really um awesome relaxed kind thoughtful medical students that he had accepted over the course of their training uh started becoming more cynical and uh, dejected and uh and even said that some of them seemed like frightened or depressed or he in his words filled with frustration and um and he reflected, you know, that these were the same behaviors that he was seeing in children who'd been abused. And so he wondered in this article that he wrote, you know, whether medical students might be undergoing similar abuse. So this is really the first time that someone wrote about this idea that medical students might be, to use his words, abused. It, it wasn't mistreatment at that time. It was abuse. And, and so part of this, there really wasn't any sense that things like this might be happening with students. I guess it was just kind of this secret that
1: everyone knew that we not talk about. I wake up in the evening, man I ain't got nothing to say. I come home in the morning, I go to bed feeling the same way, I ain't nothing but tired. And I'm just tired and I'm bored with myself Hey there baby I could use just a little help You can't start a fire You can't start a fire without a spark This comes for higher Even if we're just dancing in the dark message keeps getting clearer. Radio's on and I'm moving around the place. I check my look in the mirror. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my
2: face. My well, today I have Dr. James Nixon with me here on the Mountain Lion Podcast Studio, although uh, as is everything else these days, he is present only virtually over the phone. So uh, today we're going to talk about mistreatment what is mistreatment and what is not mistreatment and uh, james before we get started on our conversation i was wondering if you could just reintroduce yourself since you've been on a previous podcast and tell us about where you trained what you trained in and what your roles are are now currently at the university of minnesota as as well as nationally because you do have a prominent national role i understand as well
0: yes i'm james nixon and uh i I grew up actually in the south, in Arkansas and Louisiana. I moved to uh, Oklahoma when I was in high school and ended up going to the University of Oklahoma for college and then medical school, and then came up to Minnesota, where I am now, uh, to do a combined internal medicine and pediatrics residency. So I was at the University of Minnesota, and I did a chief year, because uh, I was trying out uh, how I like teaching and academics. I would kind of always thought if I didn't get into medical school, I might be a teacher and uh and i really enjoyed uh teaching it was something that i just really felt like was a lot of fun and so um stayed on at the university of minnesota as a faculty and that's where i am now i'm the vice chair for education for the department of medicine and uh, teach the intro to clinical medicine course i started off in my teaching role as a Uh, clerkship director, actually uh, first uh, pediatric clerkship and then later directed the internal medicine clerkship. Nationally, I'm pretty active with the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine and I uh, currently serve as the chair of the board for that organization.
2: Hmm. I did not know that you were also the pediatrics clerkship director prior to being the internal medicine clerkship director.
0: Yeah, I was actually a couple of years out of my chief year and um, I was walking down the hall, and uh, the, the uh, Jim Moeller, the pediatric department chair, was uh, walking by, and I was like, you know, I I just really really like teaching a lot. I've really enjoyed working with students. You know, and if there was ever any opportunity to to do something more in teaching, I'd I'd love it. And he goes, oh, you know, the pediatric clerkship clerkship director just quit. Do, do you want to do that? I was like, sure. <laughs> so that's
2: how I got started. That's a great story. So are you doing any clinic, <laughs> clinical pediatrics now, or is it just internal medicine?
0: So I, I had a combined clinic of up-
2: because we were in touch about this previously, we have our first medical student uh, since I've been at UC Davis for eight years going into med-peds this year, and uh, they're really excited about it. And uh, your help in figuring out where to apply was invaluable, I have to tell you.
0: Well, I was happy to help them.
2: All right, well, let's dive into our topic for today. And as you know, this idea came out of a previous, the, in fact, the last podcast I did, which was on uh, "Death to Pimping, Long Live Artful Questioning," and as I was uh, creating that podcast, I got the idea for talking to you about mistreatment because I know that you've spoken on this before, and because you're prominent in the educational structure at University of Minnesota, I figured most uh, most people in academic medicine are focused on the issue of mistreatment. So when I was a medical student in the mid and late 1980s, which seems like uh, the Stone Ages now, but I don't think I was ever aware of this term, mistreatment. Can you tell me the definition of mistreatment and when it came to be regarded as a major issue in medical education? Sure, Paul. Um,
0: you know, and actually, before I define mistreatment, if that's okay, I'd like to comment on something that was actually triggered by your mentioning the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yes. So... It was actually in the 1980s that the first article was ever written, at least that I'm aware of, commenting on the idea of student mistreatment. So it's not really the definition, but it's more just kind of when this idea that students might be mistreated first came around. So it's actually Henry Silver, who was a pediatrician, and he was actually a a pioneer in the field of child abuse. I mentioned I've met Pete's trained. And so incidentally, he's the Silver and Russell Silver Syndrome uh, for those who are into M's for pimping questions. I'm, I'm joking. Um, so <laughs> at any rate, um, so he, he began working in the Dean's office and, uh, and started noticing that these really, um, awesome, relaxed, kind, thoughtful medical students that he had accepted over the course of their training, uh, started becoming more cynical and, uh, dejected and, uh, and he even said that some of them seemed like frightened or depressed or, in his words, filled with frustration. And he reflected you know, that these were the same behaviors that he was seeing in children who'd been abused. And so he wondered in this article that he wrote you know, whether medical students might be undergoing similar abuse. So this is really the first time that someone wrote about this idea that medical students might be, to use his words, abused. It, it wasn't mistreatment at that time; it was abuse. And, and so, part of this, there really wasn't any sense that things like this might be happening to medical students. I guess it was just kind of this secret that everyone knew, but wouldn't talk about. You know, and if you think about what he was describing, you know, the cynical, dejected, frightened, depressed, and all that. You know, we, these are things we'd likely now term as burnout, um, or actually, you know, a loss of empathy. So there are things that we talk about still to this day, but. At least he's the first one that I'm aware of that, that really wrote on this topic. It was a really interesting article, if anyone wants to read it. I think it was, I can't remember if it was JAMA, or I think it was JAMA, and uh, it was uh, early 1980s, and it's uh, Henry Henry Silver. Huh. So, so now to your question, though, um, so as I was, you know, I mentioned I started off as a clerkship director, and, uh, and you know, as I was starting as a clerkship director, I, I really didn't have any idea at all that there was, mistreatment. It just, it it really wasn't on my radar in in any way whatsoever. I I wasn't aware of the term mistreatment. and didn't really have any sense that things like this were happening in our clerkship. And, and, you know, which probably should be embarrassing to me uh, since this article, you know, by Henry Silver was written in the 1980s. And so, you know, it wasn't really until probably around 2012, I think, that um, I was looking over our graduate questionnaire and saw that noticed this one line in there that 47 percent of our students um, were experiencing what was termed at that point mistreatment or harassment. And so, like you, you know, I was curious about Or offensive way, so those sorts of things are kind of more abuse. And the question we're talking about is more mistreatment. But I think we would all agree that those are things that we really don't want our students to be experiencing, regardless of exactly how you define it. I think, interestingly, though, or or maybe not—I don't know—but at least interesting to me. I think I think there's value in naming things, though, and defining what these names mean, because it really, for me at least, it wasn't until um, I had this name, you know, mistreatment and an understanding of what that meant, but actually I, I, you know, I looked back then and thought about my own medical school experience. you know, I, I, whereas I hadn't really thought about it, I, I clearly experienced things that I, I would define as mistreatment now, and I think having a name and saying that's not okay, I, I, I think would have been helpful to me at the time to, to understand that, so. So I guess that's a long way of answering your question.
2: No, no, not at all. That's no. kind
0: of how I think of this treatment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a that's an excellent excellent background to the topic. And so, just so that um, we're on the same page with the listeners, um, can you just explain what that graduation questionnaire that you were looking at um, back in 2012, where you were um, shocked to see the percentage of students that were experiencing that at your your medical school? Um, what What is the graduation questionnaire? Just so our listeners. Yeah, know? So
0: and to all, all medical students all across the nation and uh, they all get it you know right around the time of graduation and uh, it's asked them to reflect on their medical school experience and it actually has lots and lots of questions and this is just one small area that
2: There's not really something like this comparable for residency training because I could imagine that there's potential for mistreatment of, of residents in just about any specialty as well. Yeah,
0: definitely, and I'm yeah, I'm not aware of those.
2: We may be calling this podcast "What is and what isn't mistreatment although i'm I'm open to to changes around that James. <laughs> what is mistreatment and what isn't mistreatment? Is that too broad of a question
0: yeah. no i think that I think that's a good question it's it's a hard question i think you know, I think there are things that we would all agree are mistreatment, and I think you could you could categorize those maybe into things people say. Uh, things people do, uh, and then also for the purposes of medical students, then how people evaluate those students. I think those are each opportunities for mistreatment to occur. And I, and I think, so within those categories, you could think about things that, that might be considered mistreatment, so, or I think everybody would agree are mistreatment. So things people say, you know, would include things like offensive or sexist remarks you know, calling people names, uh, racial or ethnically motivated, other offensive remarks that could, might be nicknames uh, and uh, uh, or, um, rude names related to people's sexual orientation. I think all those things are certainly in the category of mistreatment and are things that the M C Graduate Questionnaire actually does ask about, um, and certainly things like threatening physical harm, which sadly, you know, some of our students do report that occasionally happening. Mm-hmm. Things people do, you know, include actually physically harming a student. Um, I shudder to think that that does happen at times. Um, requiring students to perform personal services, so like, hey, go get me some coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, if everybody has any question about whether that's okay or not, it's not unless you're buying them coffee, maybe, and they're wanting to get coffee. You say, hey, would you mind grabbing me one? Unwanted sexual advances, um, asking for sexual favors for a grade. Denying opportunities or rewards based on someone's gender, race, ethnicity, Treated, you know, I think we run the risk of continuing some of this mistreatment. You know, it's, it's, um, actually, going back to Dr. Silver's argument or comment, one of the things he argued is that um, the pattern of mistreatment in medical school can be similar to the pattern of treatment in child abuse. And, um, you know, victims of child abuse often go on to go on to become abusers later in life. And similarly, you could see how that could happen where medical students who are abused or mistreated could go on to mistreat their own medical students if you don't think about, how was I treated, but rather think about, how should people be treated? So I think, I think this is kind of a, uh, I think this nuanced, nuanced question about humiliation really requires us to think about, you know, really what, what is the goal of medical education? What are we trying to do when we interact with our students? You know, is or should our goal be to intimidate them or to make them feel small, to, to elevate ourselves um, to, to point out their every inadequacy or should our goal as teachers be to you know to lift them up and help them be the best student they can be you know to help them to understand their strengths and their opportunities for improvement but to do so in a supportive environment um, you know and i think that requires us to think about how do we create a safe space you know where they can learn where it's okay for them to be wrong One of of my good friends and and colleagues here at the University of Minnesota, Taj Mustafa, she always starts her rotation with a new group of students by asking them, you know, what can I do to make this a safe space?
2: Just to um, play devil's advocate a little bit with an argument I've fortunately rarely, but occasionally heard at all of the institutions I've been at um, Case Western Reserve, UCSF, my, the community hospital I worked at in San Francisco, and here, um, there are some faculty who say, you know, we really need to toughen them up because they got a tough road to hoe no matter what specialty they go into, residency's hard. Medicine's a tough field. Uh, What what is your response to to those kind of
0: will likely respond. The very things that he brings up, and again, this is the 1980s, so, you know, would they deny that abuse is happening? Would they, um, would some members of the faculty basically say that this was, it was inevitable and right for medical students to feel like they did, and there's no reason to change it? And then the final one was that, you know, everyone needs this experience. It's good for them. It'll help them be better doctors, and, you know, my, um, my response to that is, is more or less the same as his, which is that, you know, the behaviors that you see um, this manifest in students, which is them withdrawing, them uh, uh, feeling burned out, their loss of empathy. How could that possibly be good uh, for a future doctor to have those feelings and to, to be that way? I mean, we want them to be compassionate. We want them to be able to empathize with their patients. We want them to feel safe uh, revealing the things that they don't know, because how are we going to help them learn if they feel like they need to hide every single knowledge deficit from us? And mm-hmm. what better way to promote medical errors than to say, "Hey, you shouldn't tell us if something doesn't look right or you don't know something." So I, I, I just I, I don't that argument doesn't go very far with me.
2: To yeah. Yeah, no, no, me neither. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of worth. Always being aware that there is that argument out there. Um, oh, definitely. So, so how big of a problem across the country is mistreatment?
0: Um, it's, it's you know, it, it, again, it depends what what exactly you're considering mistreatment and how you're defining it, how you're asking the question.
2: So I read a bunch of articles on this topic, but not, not Dr. Silver's article. I will definitely check that one out. It sounds sounds like the uh, sort of the landmark article on the topic. But um, I found it sort of depressing to read, frankly. And the reason that I found it sort of depressing was that um, many of the articles seem to say sort of the same thing. I apologize to any of our audience members that are authors of those articles. And that is that the percentage of students... Being or suffering mistreatment, whether it's public um, embarrassment or humiliation or these other forms of mistreatment, hasn't changed all that much. And in fact, there was an article uh, that came out of UCLA uh, not too long ago where they had been working on this for over 10 years. I think it was closer to 20 years. Um, and they had done all kinds of things uh, in terms of. Uh, mentoring the faculty and uh, improving their reporting functions and so forth and they didn't find a change in the in the number of students that were suffering mistreatment so um why do you think this is that this is such a hard nut to crack
0: well It's hard not to be discouraged when you see the the lack of improvement. students we're trying to take good care of our patients we're trying to measure uh manage uh, difficult social situations and so you know And as we know when we're really busy when we're really distracted and when we're stressed um we tend to function in system one you know if you're familiar with Kahneman's, you know thinking fast and slow language you know and system one is kind of our you know our automatic patterns of actions where we default to the patterns that we've seen over time and that we've used over and over again. And if those patterns um, at times involve, you know, being a little more unkind or a little less supportive in responses to how a student's presenting uh, or discussing a case, then that's what comes out in that moment. And the difficult thing to to stop these automatic behaviors is, you know, it requires people to effortfully switch to system two. You know, to think hard about, you know, what might be a better way to help the student know the correct way to present their patient as opposed to being, no, that's not right. You know, how could you support them? And, uh, you know, it requires us to slow down, think about it, and uh, use those good skills as opposed to just the first thing that pops into your head from system one. And so I think, that's, I think those two things is the culture thing, what we grew up in, and kind of automatic
2: behaviors that, that makes this hard change yeah it's interesting that's just my
0: opinion but.
2: uh-huh uh, and along the lines of the the culture issue uh, it seems like there is quite a bit of variability across the country across medical schools is that your impression as well
0: you know i hear that um you know i haven't seen a lot of papers talking about um the differences at, at different um programs and I, I think that's a really interesting question um, and I don't know if you've seen more I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about that to be honest
2: yeah there there was one article I looked at in uh, I think it was academic medicine where they had used the, the graduation questionnaire and looked at trends and such um, and and there was yeah they had sort of like a histogram um, of the number of schools with the most mistreatment which was you know relatively small on one end, but as you went along with fewer, you know, there were a lot of schools that had had a certain degree of it. So, yeah, it does seem to vary, and that may speak to the whole cultural issue, um, because cultures are different, as we know, from institution to institution.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I, you know, and I I think I'm seeing some culture shift at um, our school, and it's interesting, this, I think is coming from both the top and the bottom. I think having leadership at the top that says, you know, it's important to be kind, you know, makes a big difference than having a a bunch of more junior faculty who are saying the same thing. I think um, my sense is that we're seeing a shift here um, in culture.
2: It's interesting. One of my, I guess, my questions for you today was, as I was thinking about this in advance, was around the whole issue of, you know, I like your system one, system two analogy. Because I feel like, you know, there, I guess there are some areas I found in the literature that are actually rising um, over the last 10 years. Um, you know, overall mistreatment, I think, is actually increasing a little bit not going down it's just this you know really tough issue and i'm just kind of wondering you like patients are sicker than they've ever been in the clinical environment um i think shifts are much shorter for uh faculty on inpatient services and even for residents so there's less of that you know that that your your junior fat or your faculty member there who says you know how can i make this safe for you um I think some of that safety comes in familiarity with your teachers and, and the clinicians you're working with. And I guess if they're around less time, that would you would think that that would contribute to this problem as well. There's less connection than there used to be maybe 40 years ago or 30 years ago or something like that. I had one attending for six weeks when I was on my medicine rotation, <clears throat> and I'm still in touch with him 30 years later. Um, because we had that sort of tight a bond after the six weeks. And he could have done something wrong, and I don't think it would have bothered me because he did so much other stuff right, you know?
0: Yeah, no, I think I, I, that's a an amazing story to have had an attending for six weeks and still have a connection with them that this much longer. I think that says a lot about the, the power we have as attendings over our learners in both positive and potentially negative ways. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure about you know, you, your connections about um, busier services, sicker patients, uh, shorter times with our students. And I, I'm not really sure. You know, I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, a lot of these initial descriptions, you know, from the 80s were when attendings did have, mm-hmm. you know, typically no, four weeks with students, from what I understand. And clearly things were happening then. um but at the same time, it does make sense to me that if you have longer with the student as you're talking about, you're going to be more likely to see them as a person and less likely objectify and treat them in a negative way. We have some anecdotal evidence from LICs where students do spend longer, you know, more typically, you know, nine months or so at a, a single site. And there does seem some suggestion, some signal from some of those experiences that, um students do or or experience less mistreatment in those settings, Um, but I'm not sure if that's true across the board. But I I, I think it's a really good question. Um, I think on the other, at the same time, residents are typically with students for a month, and when you look at where abuse comes, mistreatment comes from, it's pretty equally uh, residents and attendings, Um, and with attendings typically spending a week and residents typically spending
2: And is there any difference in in the types of mistreatment between those two groups, the residents and the faculty?
0: So the um, humiliation uh, is most likely to come from attendings, Um, some some from uh, residents as well, but attendings are the biggest perpetrator of the humiliation type thing. Residents are a little more likely than attendings to have to ask students to do things, you know, like the, hey, go coffee, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rest of the things are a small enough number that I don't think there's a, a huge variation between attendings and residents as far as how often those occur. Hmm.
2: Interesting. So I guess coming back and, and sort of finishing up here a little bit, um, we're not quite done, but <laughs> you're not off the hook yet James. Um, <laughs> so it sounded like from what you were listing earlier, that the public embarrassment and sometimes public humiliate, frank public humiliation, are the two most common sources of mistreatment. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Um, and 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 in my that last podcast I did on death to pimping, long live artful questioning. I sort of posed, and I don't I don't know that this is written in stone or in the literature, but I sort of posed that. In that, the context of public embarrassment, some of that has to be around how some people question students you know, in an effort perhaps to engage them sometimes or in an effort to pimp them, i.e. in a negative way, um, you know, create, you know, reinforcing the hierarchy, embarrassing them, showing them what they don't know, asking them questions beyond their range of knowledge. I got to imagine that some of that public embarrassment and humiliation comes from how we engage students in that way what what are your what are your thoughts about that
0: yeah I, I definitely agree I mean I think um, I think a big chunk of what what is viewed as humiliation is is uh, uh, probably use your term uh unartful questioning um, <laughs> so asking questions in a way that is more prone to humiliate students and to, to use the pejorative term pimping and so you know and i think this happens for a variety of reasons and i, I you know i think sometimes it might be intentional you know to put a student in their place i think it's more commonly just um, someone who's tired and uh, or maybe just isn't uh really thinking about how they're asking that question or, or as we talked about already hasn't set up that safe environment students uh, I mean I think you could ask almost exactly the same question and in one instance it might be seen as uh, humiliating to the student and in the other it, it it might just be seen as trying to help the student learn and, and think and you know I think doing the things like you talk about of telling the students up front that, that you like to ask questions and that you think that it helps them learn and you know you don't want to put them on the spot um, and, and and I loved a lot of your tips that, that you had from and I think all those things are helpful as far as avoiding humiliating the student, you know, doing the A lot of things you can do to kind of help students feel more comfortable with whatever question you're asking, and you know help them understand that it's it's not to be mean, it's not to put them on the spot. It's that you're there to try to help them learn. I mean, that's they're spending a lot of money on their tuition; they might as well get their money's worth. Uh-huh.
2: And you know, I, kind of along the lines of um, faculty who get rather, oh, I don't know, gun shy I guess, about asking questions because maybe they go to a talk by one of the deans on mistreatment and public humiliation. I, I have occasionally run into faculty who don't ask questions. You know, they just put the information out there and, and when I've said, you know, that that would make a great question. You know, when I've like shadowed them on rounds for feedback or whatever, why are you not asking that in a question for me, giving the group a chance to engage? They're like I, I'm afraid of embarrassing the learners. How do you respond to that? Or do, yeah, or do you have a response? To you that?
0: do peer observations. We do those as well. And I think that's, um, I think just the very act of doing those helps students should learn that we're all learning. We're all trying to do the best job we can at our job. And, um, and, and you're never done. But yeah, I've seen that as well. And, um, what I'll do sometimes is, in that setting, is um, ask them to shadow me, and, and with the intention that they'll give me feedback as well, but then I, I model some of the things that I do as far as how I ask the questions and, and show the students, you know, to show that the students don't feel um, distressed by it, if, if, again, you're doing it in the right way. I think it's such a valuable tool, and it's, it's just one of many tools in your toolbox for teaching. Mm-hmm. I think it's such a valuable tool that it's a shame if it's not being used uh, during rounds. And I don't know if you have a way that you found more helpful as far as um, helping faculty get more comfortable with that idea of asking questions, that it doesn't always have to be a negative thing.
2: No, it's, it, No, I think it's, um, and, and it's usually more junior people who are very like sensitive to not offending anyone and also that are less practiced at asking the questions like they're the, the ones that are more likely to put out a read my mind type question that everyone yeah no one can read their mind and um, and so they sort of almost like give up um, for fear of creating awkward situations so we really could be doing a lot more faculty development around this i think both locally and nationally for sure
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that I've also found helpful is sharing with junior faculty that I don't go into rounds cold. You know, I spend some time getting ready for rounds, and part of that time getting ready is looking through the charts and thinking about three or four questions that I think would be valuable teaching questions to ask on rounds. And that way, you don't end up asking that. that looks like, even if that's not your intention, but looks like you're trying to show off.
2: in your last podcast, you know, about bedside teaching. It was the I think the first in the series that I did um you talked about preparation, you know, thinking, you know, reading the note in advance and thinking about what kind of questions you're going to ask when you meet up with your teams. And I think that's a that's a great tip for for preparing mentally for those questions you're going to be asking. Well, James, uh, I know you have a lot to do and that things there in Minnesota are uh, pretty hot right now with the COVID as they are out here in California. Uh, do you have any last thoughts or uh, tips for our podcast audience?
1: I, I
0: don't think so. I mean, I think um, if people haven't had a chance to listen to your Artful Question podcast, I really enjoyed it. I, think it. I think your 10 tips at the end are, are, are spot on. And um, I think uh, asking good questions is a a good use of people's time. And I think, um, you know, getting to know your students is a great way to avoid an
2: Well, listen, I have really, really enjoyed talking with you today, James. And we entered today with Eddie Bierman's Dancing in the Dark, a Bruce Springsteen great. And we're going to exit with that song as well. Have a good day, everyone.
1: Wake up in the evening Man, I ain't got nothing to say I come home in the morning I go to bed feeling the same way I ain't nothing but tired Man, I'm just tired and I'm bored with myself Hey there, baby I could use just a little help You can't start a fire can't start a fire without a spark. This comes for how you. Even if we're just dancing in the dark. Message keeps getting clearer. Radio's on and I'm moving around the place. I check my look in the mirror. Wanna change my clothes, my hair, my face Man, I ain't got it nowhere Just living it up in a dump like this or something happening somewhere Oh baby, I just know there is You, you can't, can't start, start a fire. fire You can't start a fire fire a spark, spark. This dance fair high Even if we're just dancing in the dark Stay on the streets of this town. And they'll be carving you up, alright. They say you gotta stay hungry. But hey, baby, I'm just about starving tonight. I'm dying for some action. I'm sick of sitting around trying to write this book. I need a love reaction. Come on, baby, give me just one look. You can't start a fight. Can't start a fire 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 without a spark This guns for higher Even if if we're just dancing dancing in the dark Riding, crying of a broken heart This gun's for hire Even if we're just dancing in the dark You can't start a fire Worrying about your little world Falling apart This gun's for hire Even if we're just dancing in the dark Even if we're just dancing in the dark Even if we're just dancing